If you have your copy of the scripture, would you take it out now with me and turn uh, to the Gospel of John in chapter 15. Uh, we continue in what is called the Upper Room Discourse, although there is some question as to whether Jesus and his 11 faithful disciples are still in the Upper Room or on their way uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is their conversation on the road. But nonetheless, this remains part of the discourse that was begun in the Upper Room. And the King is returning to his glory. The glory he had before the world began. And he gives his disciples, and of course we are included in that group of his disciples. And so he gives to us assurances here of his love, of his commitment to us, even as he reminds us, particularly in chapter 15, of our duty as we await his return. He reiterates a command uh, to love. The Savior gives us a summary of our duty in this life, namely to love him and to love one another. And so this is a summary of our duty as Christians. But it's important to understand that this duty is not a summary of the gospel. Nor is this, this a summary of the mission of the church, to love God and to love his people. Now, I've seen that phrase employed in such a way, either as the gospel or the summary of the mission of the church, love God, love people. Uh, while that is an important truth, That is not the gospel. Where is the good news in that statement? Love God, love people. If the gospel were all you have to do to be a Christian or all you have to do for God to accept you is to love God and love people. What hope would you have? What comfort could you possibly find in those words? After all, how do you know if you have loved God enough? How do you know if you have loved people enough? What happens when you fail to love people enough? And so even as we look at these glorious, wonderful, beautiful words of our Savior, we must recognize where we are. This is a summary of Christian duty. This is a vital aspect of the Christian life. We must rightly distinguish between the law and the gospel. And since we're not in Moscow, Idaho, we must understand that the law is something different from the gospel. This is the law here. And the law is good. The law is is right. The law is beautiful. But we must distinguish the law from the gospel. Similarly, this is, this is an important truth, but it is not the mission of the church. This is a subset of the church's mission, of course. The church cannot fulfill her mission without proclaiming the truth, without proclaiming the law. But the church's mission is to raise up and make disciples, and those disciples are indeed to be taught to obey everything Christ has commanded. But before we can obey before we can observe anything Christ has commanded. We must come to know Jesus who laid down his life for his friends. And that is good news. Christ died in the place of sinners. So keep that in your mind as we look at these commands because we, as Christ's people, must never consider the law without also considering the gospel and how the law shows us our need of 
the gospel. But this is a specific duty that is meditated upon here by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this age of trite tautologies and subjectivity in which we are told that love is simply defined how? How is love defined by our culture? Love is defined as love. Love is love. That's how our culture defines love. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. Love is love. I don't know what that means. So if we, if we look to how our culture understands love, we'll be lost. So we must take care, extra care, to ensure we understand what our Savior says here. Love is defined not by a subjective feeling or preferences or private interpretation. Love is defined and constrained by Christ's commands, as our passage ends today. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You see, it is not our prerogative to determine what love looks like. That's Christ's prerogative. That's our Savior's right. And and that fact, beloved, is profoundly liberating. That we are not subjected to the tyranny of what our neighbor believes is the loving thing to do. We are not subjected to the tyranny of someone else's fears, preferences, goals, feelings, and passions to define what love is. The standard of love is what? Christ's law. Christ's words. The standard of this duty, as with all others, is defined by the contours of the love and the law of the Lord Jesus Christ. That law which he fulfilled. And so I want to consider, well, maybe three things with you today. We'll see. Uh, First, the love of Christ in verses 12 and 13. Secondly, the friends of Christ in verses 13 to 15. And finally, chosen for holiness in verses 16 and 17. Now, before we read God's word, let's pray, asking for his blessing upon us. Almighty and everlasting God, we do praise you, for you have loved us, and your beloved Son gave himself for us. And so we come into your presence, asking that you would speak by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of adoption, by whom you have sealed us that we may joyfully know what is our duty, that we might joyfully, even as we contemplate our duty, we might joyfully rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and his completion of your law. But even as we rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, may we be empowered for obedience. May we be empowered for love. And so, O Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name that you would speak to us for the glory of Christ. Amen. The Gospel of John, beginning at verse 15. I'm sorry, chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Amen. Thus far in God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The love Jesus has for his disciples, his friends, not only compelled us to save us from our sins, but changes the way we live with one another, that as we know that love, we imitate that love. And so let's look at verses 12 and 13. And by the way, I make no promises that we're going to make it to uh, verse 13, at least the end of verse 13. Uh, So uh, let's see what we can do. Uh, The love of Christ. First, this is the summary of Christ's commands, isn't it? Jesus is teaching on our duty to him in this section, preparing his people for his departure, for life as we know it, right? We know life in, in a way that was different in a sense than those 11 men up in that room because they knew life with Jesus' physical presence, which had its advantages, But remember what the Savior said. It is to your benefit, it is to your advantage that I go away. And so the Savior is teaching these men what it will be like, how to live to the fullness of those advantages. So how will we live and worship together? Jesus has said, they will know you are my disciples. They will know you are Christians by your love for one another, right? John 13, 35. And that theme echoes throughout the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 3. And may the Lord make you increase, abounding in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So the Christian community is the school in which we learn to love, one commentator said. And if the church is the school, if the church is the school of love, then what is the curriculum? Christ's word. Love becomes the defining characteristic of the church. We should ask ourselves, are we a loving church? Do we love one another? Do we rejoice with one another, care for one another, weep with one another, serve one another, forgive each other, enjoy one another, make time for one another? How is the love of Christ seen in the way we love each other? Now, love can, of course, be terribly subjective. We have an objective standard of love. How are we to know what love looks like in a given situation? Well, God's word. God's law. I was in a situation not that long ago in which there was some relational breach. And one party insisted the loving thing to do was X. And the other party insisted the loving thing to do was Y. And I started, well, hold on. Neither of you are free to assert what the loving thing to do is here. God's law must show us how to love. So what does God's law say we need to do in this situation? Well, neither of them wanted to hear that. And so beware the abuse of the word love. 
Beware the abuse of the word love for, for many reasons, but especially because our Savior and our King takes love very seriously. It is no light thing, so we must understand it rightly. The Savior is not speaking of a subjective feeling, is he? But the objective truth worked out in our lives that increasingly manifests his word. Our lives increasingly manifest his word. Our Savior has reiterated the importance of obedience in in verse 10 of chapter 15, hasn't he? For in the obedience of his word, we experience his love. And all of these commands can be summarized in one word. Love. And so we should be expecting this. The Savior anticipated this in chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. And so our love is that distinguishing mark and emblem, that symbol that makes Christians known. And Jesus commands us to show ourselves as his people by our love for one another. And remember, after all, what are the two great commandments? From Mark 12 and other places, the the most important command, Jesus says, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And that is a perfect summary of Christ's commands. The whole of Christian duty and loving, love for God and love for neighbor. Augustine of Hippo wrote in a sermon on 1 John 4 that we should love and uh, that one should love and do what he wills or love and do what you please. Indeed, if you are guided by love for God and love for neighbor, then do whatever you desire. Now. What's wrong with that statement? Well, nothing. Nothing's wrong with that statement. The problem is we don't often love correctly. We don't often love objectively. If we are loving in the sense Jesus uses the term here, then we need no other command. The trouble is our understanding of what is love is not shaped by the contours of Christ's love. We need to learn what love is, that love isn't just a feeling of benevolence. Love has an objective standard. And so this principle can be easily abused, right? As long as a person believes he or she is doing the loving thing or loving God and whatever he or she does, that the duty of a Christian has been fulfilled. And that's how many interpret this. Well, I thought it was loving to do X. Or you're not loving me because you're not doing Y, and, and, and I think you should. Our culture says if you want to love someone, you just affirm that person, however he or she is, because that's the loving thing to do. And there's again that tautology. But that's not what the Savior has in mind when he commands people, his people, to love each other. The love 
Jesus has in mind here, true love is guided by the commands of God, guided by love for God. The love Jesus has in view here can be tough love, can't it? True love, true love calls to account. True love sacrifices. True love risks the relationship for the good and the health of the other party. Or maybe both parties. True love speaks the truth. And so we need to see by way of application in this summary of Christ's commands how differently Jesus understands love from the way the world and society around us understand love. You see, so much of what passes for love here in Chattanooga or America generally is a perversion of love. We should also not miss that the command to love is simply a summary of all Christ's commands. Love cannot be separated from the commands Christ has given. But what shapes this love? Well, there's, we see that Christ's love shapes our love of his people. After all, our people are his people. His people are our people. Genuine love for Christ brings with it Genuine love for Christ's people. As Christ's people are commanded to imitate him, not to do what Jesus did, but to do as Jesus did. This duty is, of course, an application of the second great commandment, particularly as it applies to fellow members of the kingdom of God and of of the body of Christ. This command forces us to examine ourselves. How are you loving the people of God? How are you loving your fellow church member? How are we doing as a congregation at loving one another? As Christ loved us. This command condemns selfishness in the church body. It condemns jealousy among the people of God. It it condemns bitterness and grudges. We gauge the quality of our Christianity by our loving treatment of Christ's people. Faithfulness in doctrine is, of course, vital to the health of the church. And one way you know that liberalism is seeping in is when people try to uh, set up a false dichotomy of, of, of love versus doctrine. No, there, there's not a false dichotomy there. The truth is loving. But what we must also guard against, as much as we guard against liberalism, is a dead orthodoxy that emphasizes only right doctrine. Knowledge of good doctrine is vital to spiritual health and life, but faithful doctrine is not the measure of a church. The level and intensity of people's love for one another is crucial. It's easy to affirm right doctrine. It's easy to confess right doctrine. But if those doctrines do not result in love for the body of Christ, they haven't been understood rightly, even if they've been understood accurately. As Paul writes to Timothy 
pastoring in Ephesus. And Timothy, you remember, has been sent to Ephesus to correct theological, doctrinal issues. That there were errors by members of the session or the presbytery. And Timothy has been sent there to get these false teachers out of leadership in the church. Do you remember what Paul says to Timothy? 1 Timothy 5. The aim of our charge is orthodoxy. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Even as Timothy is sent to rectify issues in the Presbytery of Ephesus, or maybe it was First Presbyterian Church Ephesus, not sure. He was reminded that he is to do so for the sake of love. Love, we love right doctrine and we love, we love the church. So people must love Christ's people as Christ has loved us. And how has Christ loved us? Look at the uh, verse 13. The love of Christ is expressed in his sacrifice of himself. Christ's love to us is the reason we love his people. Is the reason we forbear with his people. It's the reason we forgive his people. Is the reason we celebrate with his people. Because he has loved and forgiven and borne patiently with us and rejoices with us and over us because of his sacrifice of himself in our place. Christ's sacrifice is like no other sacrifice. We are at least somewhat familiar with the concept of sacrifice. The father who runs into a burning building to save a child. The soldier who leaps on a grenade to save his comrades. That's a sacrifice. A sacrifice not to be diminished. But Christ's sacrifice is of an entirely different order. Christ's sacrifice is the greatest expression of love. I want to consider three ways. Three ways in which Christ's sacrifice is different from any other. The first is that Jesus did not have to die. Jesus did not have to die. Death had no claim on Christ. Everyone else who dies, everyone who who sacrifices his life, you know, was going to die anyway. And so there's, there's a sense in which there's a, an upper limit to the value of that sacrifice, isn't there? The soldier who, who jumps on a grenade, the, the father who dies saving his child from a fiery building. You know, that, that dad was, was going to die. That soldier was going to die someday. And so there's that upper limit to the value of that sacrifice. Every hero who sacrifices his or her life was destined for the grave. But the Lord Jesus Christ is not tainted with original sin. The grave had no power over the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his sacrifice is of infinite value. And yet out of love for his friends, the Lord Jesus Christ willingly submitted himself to the grave. So the grave could have no power over us. 
He yielded up his spirit. So that's the first way his sacrifice is different from all others. The second is this. Jesus intentionally gave up his life for his friends. He came to this earth fully intent on offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. He came fully aware of the consequences of his coming. Normally, not always, but normally, a person who gives up his or her life for another doesn't know for certain that she or he will die. And typically does so with the hope that the death can be escaped. Now sometimes, sometimes he knows there's no hope, right? Spock, when he goes into the engine room to save the Enterprise, knew he was going to die, right? The needs of the one outweigh the, no, the needs of the many outweigh the, the needs of the few. Spock knew he was going to die. Right? Sometimes there's a, there's a sacrifice. Yes, you all know I'm a nerd. Sometimes right, the, the one sacrifices himself knows he's going to die, but not always. Right? People don't join the military, the fire department, intent on dying for their country or their community, but do it to serve their country or community. They're willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, but their sacrifice is not of the order of Christ's sacrifice who came with the purpose of what? Laying down his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus intentionally gave up his life for his friends. Jesus was not subject to the grave. And now a third way in which his sacrifice is different than all other sacrifices is that Jesus died for us when we were not his friends. But Jesus died for his people when we were haters of God. When we hated him, when we were in rebellion against him. You know, when people lay down their lives, they typically do it for those whom they love or for a good cause. They typically do it for those whom they love or for a good cause. But the Lord Jesus Christ didn't die for a good cause, did he? He died for us. And he died for us when we were not good. The Lord Jesus Christ did not lay down his life for beautiful people. He died for the likes of us. Romans 5.8, Christ shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jesus says, greater love has no man than this. That someone laid on his life for his friends. Now, skeptics and critics of, of Christianity have objected to Jesus' statement here. They, they said, well, it's, it's one thing to die for your friends. But it's a greater love to die for your enemies. Isn't that silly? That just ignores the whole context, doesn't it? Jesus has taught elsewhere on loving one's enemies. But here, he's speaking to his friends. And he'll die for these friends in a few hours. But only after his friends have abandoned him 
and denied knowing him. Jesus died so he could make his enemies his friends, so he could show his love to the likes of us. So we should consider by way of application what it is to love each other as Christ has loved us. Love for God is tied to and verified by our love for other believers, says Don Carson. How do we love other believers? We seek their good. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes our other believers don't want to see what is good. We sacrifice ourselves for them. We sacrifice our preferences and privileges for them. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. What does that mean? To love not in talk and word, but in deed and truth. Well, John clearly has in mind more than the gallows, more than going to prison for the sake of the brethren. (laughs) Loving others isn't just about laying down one's physical life for them. But in everything that leads up to that, laying down pride, laying down grievances, relinquishing your preferences, setting aside social customs to welcome them and show love to those who are in Christ. Sharing of your substance and meeting their needs. Jesus gave all of himself for his people. Are you willing to give sacrificially each month, each week for the good of the kingdom of God? The command to love as Christ loved is not easy. Bishop Ryle notes, even the stupidest Humblest believer must be loved. The weakest, lowest, most ignorant, most effective disciples are not to be despised, says J.C. Ryle. All are to be loved with an active, self-denying, self-sacrificing love. He that cannot do this or will not try it is disobeying the command of his master. Do we have a Christ-like love for our fellow believers, fellow church members, for the body of Christ as it extends to the roles of First Presbyterian Church and beyond. You know, that's one of the wonderful things about being Presbyterian. That we are regularly reminded that the body of Christ is, is not just limited to this congregation. But that we are organically linked to other congregations. Most obviously in the Tennessee Valley Presbytery. And then the Presbyterian Church in America. And then Reformed Churches. And then in other churches wherever the gospel is proclaimed. That we are linked with them. And so our love and our concern is not limited to the members of this congregation. The Lord Jesus Christ has placed great emphasis on this love. Emphasized all the more by the reality that he speaks of these things as he closes out his time with the disciples. Now let's look in the second place, verses 13 to 15. Friends of Christ. The friends of Christ are abundantly loved by him. 
Jesus laid down his life so that he could make his enemies friends. You are my friends, Jesus says. To them and to us. And so while there's a sense in which Jesus' death on the cross benefits the whole creation, the cosmos generally, there are particular special and abundant benefits for his friends. Jesus died for his friends, applying the the limitless power and infinite value of his sacrifice on the cross, particularly to his people. Jesus died for his enemies to reconcile the enemies of God to God. Christ died for his friends in our sinfulness so that we would know the depth of his friendship. Jesus sacrificed himself for his people knowing the full details, depth, and extent of our wickedness, sin, and depravity. Consider that for a moment. Jesus knew you and still died for you. Jesus knew you and still died for you. And so we should see by way of application that you have no dirty secrets from Christ. You have no dirty secrets from Christ. That's one of the reasons we sang from Psalm 139. That he has searched us and known us. You have no dirty secrets from Christ. Therefore, you should be unafraid to bear your heart out to Christ. Because he already knows you. I remember remarking once that if people knew the true level of my own sinfulness, my own depravity, I wouldn't have a friend in the world. Because we can, we can usually do a, a fairly good job of concealing the full extent of our sinful desires, our sinful hearts from other people. Right? We, we can usually do a pretty good job of that. At least most of us. But you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how well you, you are at concealing your sinfulness, The Lord Jesus Christ knows how sinful you are. So don't be proud before him. The Lord Jesus Christ knows how sinful you are, so don't be afraid to confess your sins to him. Because, Christian, Christ's love for you is unchangeable. Christ loved you at your worst. Christ died for you at your worst. Christ called you his friend, knowing the full level of your sinfulness. And because of his grace, he befriended you to make you holy. So because Christ knows the full level of your sinfulness, we should be very familiar with him in prayer. Pouring out our deepest needs to him. Ask him for great measure of grace to stand in the evil day and for abundant grace in the time of temptation. Confess the fullness of your particular sins to him particularly. Do not be content, Christian, with a a general confession of sin. But tell him all of it that you may know the fullness and depth of his mercy and love and pardon. We should also see by way of application that Christ is our friend. Not simply our Savior, not simply our Lord, but our friend. 
in confessional historic Christianity, especially in this uh, age of confusion, we, we often emphasize uh, that Christ is, is not your buddy, he's your Lord. And that's true. But we mustn't overlook that Jesus called us his friends. That yes, he is our Lord. But he's also our friend. No one is so well off as a friend of Christ. Remember how the Savior characterized his love for his people. Verse 9. As my Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's how the Savior characterizes his love for you, Christian. The Savior's love of his people is not only pity, not only compassion, but delight, enjoyment, and approval as a friend. Who has a friend whose company he doesn't enjoy? Do you, do you have friends like that? Do you have a friend who you just can't stand to be around? If you do, that's not a friendship. Right? If, you have, if you have this friend about whom you, you just are constantly complaining and, and pitying and just, oh, he's so awful. He, just, he always sticks his foot in his mouth and he's got this terrible B.O. and he's just terrible, but I feel like I, I need to call him because he's just so pitiful. That's not a friend. That's a project. <laughs> Jesus does not view his people as Merely projects, but as friends. He enjoys your company. But there's a mark of friendship. He's not merely a friend. Look, verse 14. Look, we made it there. We mustn't think that this friendship with Christ is a friendship of equals, as Americans often conceive. It is difficult in human societies for people of different ranks and stations and socioeconomic classes to be friends. But the Lord is not constrained. He is an infinitely superior being. His holiness, his majesty, his power are beyond our comprehension. And yet he calls us friends. He is the king, yet he calls us friends. And deep friendship is always depended on common aims and goals and fellowship, a shared worldview, at least on some level. And so Jesus says, and rightly so, as the king speaking to his friends, you are my friends if you do what I command you. After all, who would be friends if you had a friend who had been maliciously harmed by a company or an activity? You, you wouldn't participate in that activity. You wouldn't support that corporation. A faithful friend would not. Likewise, the Lord Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for the sins of his people. The Lord Jesus Christ went to war against the power and the condemnation and the sin that we had committed. He was bruised and crushed for our iniquity. How then can we who call ourselves his friends continue to support sin? To make a habit or to approve of participating in sin. 
And so the Lord Jesus Christ again says, his friends, keep his commandments. He may be our friend, but he's still our king. And he said this before, right? If, if you love me, keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. But it's important to remember again that obedience is not what makes his people his friends. Nor is obedience what keeps his people his friends. You are not made his friend because you have obeyed well enough. And you do not stay his friend because you are obeying well enough. That's not what he's saying here. Obedience, rather, is what characterizes the friends of Christ. Very important to note, Jesus is not telling us how we became his friends or how we remain his friends. If we love him, we will desire to do what pleases him because what is pleasing to him is pure goodness. Doing what, Christ is, doing what pleases Christ leads to blessing. His commands are good and right. His commands lead to our good and the good of others. Rick Phillips puts it this way. He says, because Christ's commands are for blessing others, we should never compromise the Bible in order to be relevant or gain members. His commands are good. Why would we not want to do them? And yet often, we think that if we compromise what is good, if we just cut a corner here for a good cause, that it's okay. And if we, if we uh, minimize something that's offensive to the culture for the sake of, of winning the culture, well, we can do that. That's okay because, because evangelism is worth it because winning the culture is, 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 is a good goal. But you know, Our goal as a congregation cannot be, must never be gaining members and numbers because if that's our goal, then we're constantly going to be changing what we believe to suit the culture of Northwest Georgia. And you know, the culture of Northwest Georgia is not compatible with the kingdom of God. And I know you people from Hamilton County know that. Rather, We must proclaim as a congregation the full counsel of God. We must be devoted to Christ's commands. Now, that's not going to make us the largest faith communion. But we're called to faithfulness and obedience. Because Christ's friends obey. But look at what else he says about his friends. Yes, his friends obey. But his friends also know his mind. We're called to obedience, but we're not merely slaves. A slave, a servant, does not need to understand why the command is given. And you know, the king doesn't really care whether the slave understands the greater purpose. He just says, dig that ditch. The slave doesn't care whether he's bearing a horse in it or it's going to carry irrigation. The slave just digs the ditch. But the king might share his purpose with his friend, his heart, his desire. Because the king delights to talk about his desires. 
The king's friend, of course, must obey the king's command, but he's informed as to the king's thinking. And don't we see this over and over again in the scripture? God gives a command, but also very often explains why this command is good or illustrates the danger of departing from that principle. Two Old Testament saints are referred to as friends of God, Abraham and Moses. Genesis 18, God comes down to visit and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the perversions there. But on the way, he stops to inform Abraham about what he is going to do and why. And he does this because Abraham is his friend. Likewise, Moses was privy to God's plans and made them known to Israel. God spoke with Moses mouth to mouth as one speaks with a friend. Indeed, Jesus revealed his motives, revealed his mind to us, to his friends, so that we may better delight in our obedience of him. So let me ask you by way of application. Do you know the mind of God? Do you know the mind of God? Maybe a better question. How do you know the mind of God? Yes, the Lord has given us his spirit, the spirit of God, but God doesn't speak with us the way he spoke to Moses or Abraham. Where does the spirit of God speak? He speaks in the scripture. If you would know the mind of God, if you would know the mind of Christ, if you would know the will of Christ, if you would defeat Satan and not be ignorant of Satan's designs, then you must know the scripture. For in the scripture, Christ has revealed his plan. In the scripture, Christ has revealed his heart and his desires for your life and your growth in holiness. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, you are abundant in your goodness and we praise you that your steadfast love endures forever. We thank you that you have saved us, not because of works done by us, but because of your steadfast love, covenant faithfulness and mercy. We ask, oh God, that you would strengthen us for the week to come that we would indeed rest in the Lord Jesus Christ this day and be filled with his spirit as we come and worship you again tonight. Bring glory to yourself in our midst, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.